Nicholas Dart and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein here with Nicholas Zart. And as a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. So how are things for you this week, Nicholas? Hey, Matthew. Uh, thank you. Hi, everyone. Everything is, uh, is going pretty well. In fact, you know how some weeks, like you really have a hard time getting stories and everything, and then other weeks you're absolutely submerged and swamped? Well, it's one of those weeks, and on top of it, we have to fly out for a family emergency, and, and it's just one of those really crazy busy week. But I see that you've got some interesting things that you want to talk about today. Well, I, I guess, should we announce what we're going to talk about today, or should we just jump in it directly? I think we should probably tease people a bit. Sure. Uh, we've got a review <laughs> of the electric bike today and discussion of Tesla's Model 3 ramp-up issues and some of the publicity around that. But we will start with the appetizer, which is kind of intriguing. We'll play the clip here. You people need to be reprogrammed. You continually vote against your own interests. You put people in Congress, in the White House. They aren't gonna help you. They're not gonna bring your jobs back. So what? let me tell you what the progressive liberal Daniel Richards is gonna do. We're gonna reprogram you. We're gonna re-educate you. We're gonna teach you to read and write. We're gonna help you get jobs with clean energy. And what you just heard was professional wrestler and mildly viral YouTube sensation, Daniel, the progressive liberal Richard, dissing the wrestling audience in red state Trump voting Appalachia wrestling territory using liberal talking points, our talking points. I came across this story through Matt Taibbi, who interviewed Daniel Richards on his podcast. On the one hand, it was hilarious, but it was also heartbreaking because I can see a lot of myself in that. Over the years, I've gotten a little bit less strident and combative about dissing fossil fuels and people who disagree with me. But good God, if I'm coming across like that, well, it's no wonder I have uh, convincing people who disagree with me politically that on the clean energy front, this is the future. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good point you're making. And I think it's also, unfortunately, part of our society's upbringing that you're either right or you're wrong. They're right or they're wrong. And it's something that serves not us, but serves those in power very well and justifying their positions and everything by shunting us or cattling us into a left or right debate. I, I like what this guy is doing in, in one sense. I mean, I'm neither left or right. I actually abhor either, either side's but I like what he's doing because, boy, he's really getting in their faces and maybe that's a good way of, of doing it. But it's, I also think it's, it's sort of, you know, toying with a hornet's nest. And you know what's really interesting about this guy is unlike other wrestlers or, or high profile people who made it into the political arena, he is coming from the left side in a very uh, right side centric um, area. Let me Think of Ventura, the, the other wrestler. I think he was uh, on, on the right side of things. And when you think of TV stars, quote-unquote movie stars, do, going into politics, they're most of the time going to 
the left side of things. So I think what he's doing is interesting. And yeah, I, I, I totally relate. I think, especially in our beginnings, when we started writing, we were much more enthusiastic, much more aggressive, much more in, in faces. And I remember picking every single comments until I exhausted them, but I exhausted myself in the meantime. And, and you know, ultimately, I think there's something that I think we all have to realize is that we react to the things that we haven't fully solved in ourselves. When somebody says something and you react, it's because, well, hey, it's, it's tugging on a cord inside of you and you got to kind of figure it out. And I think after a while, us writers or, or, or talkers or film people, we, we you know, finally understand that, gosh, I'm making myself into a spectacle, a public spectacle, and I'm sort of showing out there all of my uh, frustrations and insecurities. And, and after a while, you just learn how to pick your battles and, and your fights, I guess. <laughs> Jesse Ventura, he was a professional wrestler in the 1980s. He had to retire early. I think he had some heart problems. Yes. But he was a villain character, a heel uh, opposite Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and he ran for governor in the state of Minnesota, and he won in 1998. It was one of these incredible moonshot victories where his popularity basically rose exponentially in the last few weeks of the campaign because people saw the authenticity in him. He wasn't polished. Uh, he wasn't as offensive as Trump by any means, but he wasn't a scripted politician. So I think that Trump has certainly broken down the barrier for people who really know how to work a crowd, who, who know television, who know Twitter now, to be able to have a, a big political impact. And this is heartbreaking because now I happen to be on the left, but I can see and I have many friends on the right, and I can understand how they come up with their views. We simply start from slightly different perspectives. It would have been really useful for me to have seen this professional wrestler's script, his gimmick, 10 years ago, say, where I could have said, oh, wow, that's kind of me just amped up to 11. We do <laughs> have combative folks. We do need to have people who are like Elon Musk, who are pushing the realm of possibility, the realm of conversation, 20 years ago, people were saying, oh, solar and wind, they'll only ever be 5% of a grid, otherwise the grid will go down. Well, we're well past that. I think we have 40 or 60% being talked about now. Yes. In the future, it'll be even higher as we have energy storage. So we do need amped up to 11, pushing the conversation forward, but we should probably, for the benefit of our goals, have some people dialing it back to nine. And I'm happy to be one of those guys. I'm happy to have Elon Musk being 11. But having people dialing it back to nine and being able to empathize and say, look, I admit fossil fuels have given us so much cheap energy that we have the internet, iPhones, and all these other things. You guys who work in the coal mines, it, it is very good in the sense that you can make a living with one income, with a high school education. You know, not everyone's going to learn to code. Not everyone's going to be a sports star, right? Not everyone's going to go to university. That's just the reality, and we have to make sure everyone has a part in a clean energy future. And if we can start with that empathizing, start with that connection, that validation and say, wind turbines and solar farms have tons of blue collar jobs on the spot labor, which can never be outsourced. If there's some way for us to connect, I would love to hear listeners tips in the show comments. I would love to synthesize and collect our collective wisdom on that because that should help us maybe it'll even help us in the american thanksgiving season coming up 
Just a very quick point that you're, you're making, and actually a very good one too, is um, there is a life after cola. Obviously, there are lots of things that they can do. I was reading a few years ago, the average pay salary for people working in the renewable energy and quote unquote blue collars was so much higher than what they are doing for, uh, for coal. And I think over here near Los Angeles, we have the, the equivalent of the coal mine would be, I guess, the long shoremen, the, the guys who work at the harbor and who were going on strike a few years ago because of automation and the electrification of, of a lot of the tooling. But I've also spoken to a lot of them who they're taking training courses, they're taking all sorts of courses so that they become the ones who handle those machines, who coordinate these machines. And a lot of them are going into solar energy. A lot of them are going into wind energy and they're making much more. That's the, I mean, maybe not as much, as much as the longshoremen were making before. That's a very specific case. But if I'm thinking for the coal people, the people going into the mines, it's really, I mean, they're going to make more money. It's going to be healthier. But it's also hard leaving your place. It's also hard leaving your community. And that I totally understand. But this is America. People are used to moving around and switching jobs every five or 10 years and leaving their place. So, and I'm sure it's, it's probably the same in Canada, maybe not as much, but probably the same. Yeah, it is much the same in Canada. There is a, a fair degree of labor mobility. You are correct that there are many opportunities in clean energy that can be much more beneficial, much healthier, much more prosperous for communities than fossil fuels. And if we can just make sure we don't minimize, we acknowledge the pain and the difficulty that any transition imposes on people, then perhaps we can connect a little bit more. If someone out of Kansas, say, suddenly said, hey, all you programmers, you guys have to change jobs now because people in China and India can do the programming a lot cheaper than you. You have to learn how to, I'm not sure what the next thing would be, 3D printer firmware or some other crazy thing like that. Then I'm sure that would also cause a lot of consternation and concern in Silicon Valley. And I'm sure there's a way that we can connect with people who aren't necessarily on our side yet. I'm sure many people already have great ideas and are doing so. It would just be very satisfying to rob the Koch brothers of some <laughs> unintentional fan. Maybe this is where I guess I can come in because I'm, I'm clearly down the middle of the road. So maybe like people like, like me can be more um, in the middle of the discussion and the conversation. We'll have to see about that one. Yes. Now, one suggestion that I had a little bit before we started recording was the Model 3 is necessarily going to be a polarizing vehicle. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing because it is aimed at urban city dwellers, probably the wealthy, wealthier types of folks. It is, after all, going head-to-head -head against the BMW 3 Series. That works well on the two coasts, which tend to be, you know, blue state, tend to be more liberal. But the best-selling car in America, best-selling vehicle, rather, is the Ford F-150. And the Ford Series just to give you a sense for things, the Ford F-Series has a market share of about 5%. And if we take all the hybrids and all the plug-in electric vehicles in the States, all together, those guys have a market share of maybe 3%. And all the plug-in electric vehicles on their own have a market share of maybe 1%. So I think it would be an interesting thought exercise. Could we connect with the people who aren't already on our side if we say, you know, as much attention as the Model 3 gets, I think that the plug-in hybrid Ford F-150, when it comes out in 2020, is going to have a bigger impact. It's going to be the car that redefines electric vehicles, that will make 
electric vehicles something that folks in red states really embrace. It'll make electric cars appealing to people across the political spectrum and across the geography of the United States, not just something where city dwellers tend to be fans, but where ex-urban and rural drivers also enjoy these. You know, it's, it's, it's true. It's a good point because I think I, I always thought plug-in hybrids are such a wonderful way to ease people into um, EVs and, and not freak out about the range anxiety. So I think, yeah, I definitely, I think the uh, Ford F-150, uh, the plug-in hybrid version will be interesting. However, Ford has dropped the ball a lot of times. I mean, look at what they did with the electric Focus, which is a great little car, but they've never really done anything with it. And they've always pushed their, uh, their hybrids and energy lines. Yeah, I hope it does happen because that will be a great car. I just don't want to wait for 2020. I mean, it didn't Chrysler had a plug-in hybrid truck back in 2010, but I guess they, they stopped it. Anyway, moving onwards with that, we can always talk forever about that. Yeah. Going from the uh, truck then to the bicycle sector, we had a review of the Jetson Adventure last week and for balance and to make sure that we're trying to be even-handed. Nicholas also gave a review of the GoCycle bicycle this past week on Clean Technica. And Nicholas, do you want to re-summarize your thoughts and impressions? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those bicycles that is so futuristic that I, I knew I was in for trouble because there's nothing you can compare it to. It's a folding bicycle. The body is made out of magnesium. It has very decent range, um, about 20 miles, I mean, maybe more actually. It has a great pedal assist. The gearing system basically is predictive, but you can still do it yourself. But the weird quirky thing about it is you don't have any displays that you would have in a normal bicycle. Everything is handled by a bunch of LED strips and it tells you the state of charge, it tells you the speed, it tells you what gear you're in, it, it gives you all the information you need to know, but it's kind of like those, and I forgot the name of those watches that we had at some point in the 90s that just had dots, and then you could tell what time it was according to those dots. So you had to relearn that. And you can see in the comments, obviously, a lot of people did not get the bike and don't get the bike, but it's definitely a fringe bike. And the G3 is an expensive bike. It's $4,500. All things considered for what it does, how it does, it's the price you would have to pay for something like that. So now, thankfully, Richard at GoCycle introduced the GS, which is a toned-down version of the uh, the G3. Of course, a much more affordable one. He almost half the price. It's down to $2,200. I can hint now that he's also working on an even more affordable version. So I'm assuming something's going to come up in the um, $1,500 to $1,800 range pretty soon. But it is such a unique bike. It really makes me feel that... I'm looking into the future. This is how most likely bikes, will, electric bikes, will look at least in cities, at least in very urban parts of the world where you just, you know, go from your door to your workplace. You know, the thing folds up. It's just a beauty, the way it was designed. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it looks so odd that you wouldn't think it would be a good ride, but it's an excellent ride. The faster you ride, the more fun it is. And those tires are grippy as heck. I, I just, I loved it, but very hard to explain what it is. Very hard to uh, convey the feeling. And also nothing to compare it with short of the cheaper ones from other countries that don't really work really well. So, tough one. If I can make an analogy, we will have a photo of the bike in the show notes. But it reminds me a little bit of the iPhone in the sense that it's got a premium price and it does look different from what people generally have on the market. And when something's a bit different, it can be a big hit or a big dud. I'm thinking the Toyota RAV4, which kind of created the crossover segment 
monstrous hit. And on the other hand, it could be a big dud, like the Subaru Baja, which they canceled pretty quickly, where it, it looked like a surfer's kind of vehicle, but just didn't really have a market. And so I wonder if the best way to look at this GoCycle G3 and perhaps other emerging products that come out is purists or people who are used to regular looking bikes, they might not embrace it. The question might then be, does it bring an even bigger crowd in? Over here in Vancouver, we have a startup called Velometro. They make velocycles, kind of an electric assist, yes. which has a cover on it so you don't get wet in the rain. Feedback I've gotten is that cyclists hate these things because they're <laughs> kind of wide. They're kind of bulky and it's a little bit like cheating. A real cyclist in Vancouver doesn't mind getting wet in the rain. It, it also makes it actually more difficult to pass people when you're in the protected bike lanes because they're wide enough to take up pretty much the entire bike lane. So on that hand, it could be a dud. However, if it gets a lot more new people riding bicycles or riding these velocycles, it could be a monstrous success. You're accessing a whole bunch of people who were never in that segment to begin with. It's a bit like Tesla's where early studies showed that the Volt and the Leaf attracted people who were Prius drivers who were interested in minimizing their ecological impact, but the Tesla's brought in the alpha male sports car performance enthusiast. So it's an entirely different market that brought in with great success. You're hitting all the points. It is the iPhone. And I remember when the iPhone came out, everybody who had a Blackberry were just dissing it, poo-pooing it. And well, guess what? Everybody pretty much has an iPhone these days. And and Samsung is, I know, trying to get into the market, but they're not doing the same thing as the iPhone is doing. And, and the original iPhones had a really great quality. The 4S was an amazing quality phone and everything, but you're right, it was a big bet. And they knew that they didn't have to go for overall market shares. That's not what Apple is about. Apple knows that they can produce less, sell for more, and they're the richest company around, bar none. So there you go. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think that the Go Cycle definitely appeals to those who can afford those kind of bicycles, but also those who get it, you know, those who are a little bit more futuristic and progressive in their thinking and also want something totally different because I do also get the comments that uh, it's not for purists. You're not a real biker if you or bicyclist if you write those things. Well, I beg to differ. You know, I'm 52. Actually, I don't want to sweat all the time. I want to be able to get to my workplace or to my next meeting without dripping and oozing sweat everywhere. And those bikes are great for that. And ultimately, I go faster, further. And that's really what I want to do. And I still get a workout out of it because I can also throttle back the assistance and pedal harder. You're right. It is the iPhone of the uh, electric bikes out there. And I, and I think he's, he's onto something. And I think the newer generations are going to be much more affordable and they're going to attract more people. I'm not sure if it's going to be the alpha. I don't think it might uh, attract alpha electric bike riders out there, but it'll definitely attract uh, those who are you know, more interested in science fiction, those who are more interested in uh, you know, the finer things in life and all that kind of stuff. Good for them if they can afford it. That's perfect. Now, going from what is perfect to what is not perfect, Tesla has in the past week gotten a lot of media attention about its difficulty ramping up the Model 3 production. Today, a piece came up on the Daily Kanban, a site which is noted for its Tesla criticism, which I think really crystallizes the heart of the issue. 
We will include this one link. I realize that Zachary has uh, something of a blood feud going with Bertel Schmidt, and that a lot of people won't be fans of Ed Niedermeyer, who uh, is the author of this piece, who has written some pieces critical of Tesla. I just want to read the one segment that I think captures the heart of what should have been a non-issue and what turned it into a bit of a media feast. And the paragraph goes, <clears throat> the mismatch between Tesla's ambitious guidance and underwhelming performance, as well as its aggressive attempts to discredit any reporter attempting to add to the public's understanding of the situation, turned a wholly unsurprising production hiccup into a full-blown controversy. <laughs> That's well that. said. <laughs> yeah, so, so what this is, is it's about communication, not unlike the professional wrestler that we led off the episode with. Tesla has been so strident in its going after critics that in this case, they would have been much better served to say, hey, production is not ramping as expected. It's on us. Watch out, though, because in three months or six months or whatever it is that the production line is fully up and running, we are going to decimate the BMW 3 Series. Now, I don't know anything about the vehicle apart from what I've seen in various YouTube videos and what I've seen in comments, but certainly I think that would have avoided all of this media pylon, which has come when reporters say, huh, it's, it's like that political expression that it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. There hasn't been a crime here. It's not the delay, it's the over-optimism, which yes. has caused this pylon, which has caused this distraction, which can't be helping Tesla. Just thinking, I can't believe people are still getting up in arms when Tesla misses something that they claim that they will achieve. The company has been doing this all the time, and now it's been 15 years. By now, we know that any company, most of any companies, when they say they're going to do something, they, they, they most of the time they miss it. And Tesla, of course, is, is missing it. There's nothing new about that. They did the same thing with the Roadster. They did the same thing with the Model S. They're going to do the same thing with the, the, the Model 3 and so on and so forth. Hopefully not so on and so forth. But, but you're right. It is a, a message philosophy problem that they have, and they need to start toning it down a little bit more. And also, those journalists have to you know, take, take a chill pill. It reminds me a lot of, I can't remember who said that, but they're like frustrated F1 drivers and they just get behind the, their keyboard and just bash at all these companies. Whoop-de-doo, we know that Tesla has missed a lot of things. We know that Tesla is still in the red. They make great cars. That's really what I'm interested in in the end. And if I could afford it, I'd get a Model S. Hopefully, I'll get a Model 3. End of discussion. That, I think, plays into what uh, Ed Niedermeyer was saying in this article is that it is totally okay for Tesla to say, hey, we're a bit delayed. That's totally fine. There's no, there's no problem. What he's caught on to is that Tesla has been saying, we're crushing it. The production line is basically has a few bottlenecks. But that's not the same thing as the production line is still being built or perfected in Detroit before it gets shifted to Fremont. If Tesla could just uh, have clarified that or not been so uh, boisterous, then you could have avoided all of this. It kind of takes away the ammunition of the critics, right? If you say, oh yeah, if say Toyota says, yeah, we were late to the EV game, we'll be there in a few years, but yeah, we kind of missed the ball on this one. There's not really much to pile on with. If Tesla can preempt some of this criticism by taking a hit saying, hey, yeah, sorry guys, but come back in three months or six months and this will be kick-ass vehicle, it will dominate its segment, all those other good things, then there's no story, then there's no criticism, then there's no journalists digging up dirt, <laughs> fanboys who are criticizing the journalists who are ultimately trying to find out the hidden messages that are 
lurking underneath brave words and bravado. And you know, and hence the old marketing adage that negative publicity is better than no publicity. But I just wish we could move on and move away from all of that because it's high time that indeed we just get straightforward talks. And you know, that's why, I mean, ultimately we do have our favorites and our favorites are the ones that I know my favorites are the ones I have the most serious relationships with, very frank, very honest. And and I love writing about these guys. I actually love in, uh, interacting with these guys and it's great. And their cars might not be the best, but hey, they do a great job and they just you know, can kind of shut up and do it <laughs> kind of thing. And in the spirit of shut up and do, perhaps I'll call it a close for this week's episode. You guys all have your commutes and you have to finish those commutes and get doing your regular daily tasks. So thank you all very much for listening. We do hope you had a safe commute. Join us next week to get your electric fix. Yep. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week. And we always look forward to your comments and your feedback and uh, drive safely, of course. 